Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast on today is September the 6th, 2019. Every week this podcast will bring you a slice of current affairs where you might find engaging and informative. We look at the big stories of the week, but we also hope to delve into some of the off-agenda stories, particularly those we featured in the Irish Examiner and our unique interpretation of those stories. Now this week I think there's only one big story dominating everything and to discuss it I'm joined by political editor of the Irish Examiner Danny McConnell. Danny how are you? Mick how's it going? How are things? Grand Danny and uh, I think all eyes this week have been on Westminster as we saw the latest in the Brexit saga and some would suggest a denouement of sorts but we'd have to wait and see whether that's the case. Obviously the person who's dominating the whole story is Boris Johnson. Would it be fair to call him Mr. Brexit. Yeah, in some ways yes, in some ways no. Yes, in terms of that he was, I suppose, the the key point person in the 2016 campaign. But before you got there, it was a touch and go as to whether or not he would back Brexit or not. I mean, there was this famous story that Michael Cockrell of the BBC uh, uncovered that he had written two columns for his uh, the paper, the Daily Telegraph, and it was literally at the last minute he decided to, to plump for Brexit over staying in. Um but certainly he has made it his mantra as Prime Minister to get out on the October 31st. And he was at it again yesterday saying, you know, that he'd rather die in a ditch than than, than delay. Um, Could we re- re- rewind it a bit further yeah. though, Danny? When you say, yeah, and, and that, that thing about 2016, uh, it, the interpretation seems to be he had the two columns written and he had to decide which would better his career. And mm. so he plumped to go for the uh, the Leave campaign. But take it back anything up to 20 years prior to that. And the whole tone that was set in the UK, the what you might call anti-EU tone. OK, Margaret Thatcher, initially she was in favour and then she fell out of it. But Mr. Johnson was sending his dispatches from Brussels, basically straight bananas, loony um, Europeans, etc. He, he contributed up the Burnham and all the rest. Yeah, of exactly. Like, yeah. He, he contributed to the tone that ultimately would lead yeah. to this move to uh, have the referendum. Max Hastings, who was his editor at the Daily Telegraph, said we wanted someone, someone bright and, and bushy-tailed to kind of go over to Brussels and kind of put some stick about. And essentially, that's what Boris did. He took a very anti kind of Brussels. Um, kind of slant on, on his reporting. You know, a lot of his reporting, it's fair to say, was over-egged, over-hyped, kind of, you know, would take something with a grain of salt or a grain of truth in it and hype it up beyond recognition. Um, and he himself has admitted that, you know, some of his stories in his classic Boris fashion, may, some of those stories may have been over-egged. That's putting it mildly. Um, but I would certainly think it, the foundations for Brexit were certainly laid back as far as that, in terms of there was this sort of beginning, like when Margaret Thatcher was on her way out, she was very critical of the the uh, advance of the European Central Bank, this idea of an unelected sort of commission, so on and so forth. So the foundations for all this discontent and, and malcontent around Brexit were certainly the seeds for that were sown back in the late 80s, early 90s. And Boris Johnson certainly played his part in that in his dispatches from, from Brussels. He did. And then we fast forward to the referendum campaign. I think... An, an awful lot of opinion would suggest that without 
Johnson at the head of the Leave campaign, in all likelihood, they would not have won because whatever one says about the man, he is an excellent campaigner. Yeah, he's also an excellent, he's an excellent campaigner, but he also has something that's very unique in politics. He connects with ordinary people. You know, um, he made his name largely by make, by gaffing and, you know, bumbling his way through appearances on Have I Got News For You, which gave him a much broader appeal than many politicians have. And and despite stories about lying and losing his job, he, lo- he lied to Michael Howard, the then leader of the Conservative Party, about whether he was or wasn't having an affair. And so it turned out that he was. He lost his job. He was sacked by the Times because he made up a quote. Um, so he has this history of, you know, pretty dodgy behaviour. He was involved with a guy called Darius Guppy, who was a convicted fraudster. He knew him from Eton and the Bullington Club in, in, in Oxford. Um, and he the Bullington was a, Club? Bullington Club. This is the secret... Uh, club in in Oxford where very rich people would go in, get dressed up in like Egypt and kind of you know white white suits and, and white tide, go around, cause absolute chaos around the place in Oxford. Trash restaurants, get very drunk, very raucous. David Cameron was all, and George Osmond were also members of this of this famous club. Um, but Darius Guppy was also a member of this. He was a convicted froster. He rang Boris Johnson looking for the number of a journalist who he wanted beaten up because he was investigating Darius Guppies. Boris Johnson was taped saying he would help Darius Guppy. Now, he has long since said nothing ever came of it, but yet it, it portrayed him in bad light. Despite all of this, despite countless affairs, marriage breakups, all the stuff about you know being fired from various jobs because of lying, etc. like that, the people love him. You know, across politics, across his own party, he's seen as a unifier rather than a divided or has been up to, certainly up until this point. Um, so therefore, a lot of people in the Conservative Party have looked at Boris Johnson and said, he's someone who can win us an election. He's someone who can win us an overall majority. For all his faults, he's a winner. So why not hitch our, hitch our tent to him? Like, And that's what they've done. Yeah, so we take it back to the, the referendum campaign. As we say, he was he was at the head of the Leave campaign. No question in the world, as you say, he, he could connect with people and that... 52% I think ultimately so I think there is a lot a, a big body of opinion that would suggest he was the crucial factor there immediately after it therefore it looked like he was going to become Prime Minister yeah. he was in pole position mm-hmm. uh, and then his buddy Michael Gove he dropped him in it he did the dirty on him without uh, putting it again putting it mildly um, so Boris Johnson for two or three years had been laying the foundations to become leader of the Conservative Party curry nights with you know backbench TDs he had really ingratiated himself with the new intake of TD or MPs I should say from from 2011 Um and it was working with strategies that was working. He was accessible. He was likable. They all loved him, you know, and he was building this groundswell of opinion. He was by far the standout candidate. Theresa May literally only got it because of the chaos in the campaign. Michael Gove uh, and Boris Johnson decided to kind of come together to support Boris's campaign. The quid pro quo was that, that Gove was going to be made Chancellor of the Exchequer. But the campaign wasn't going well. And I think if anyone has seen, there's a documentary online that you can see, the behind-the-scenes documentary of just how the two teams just didn't interact well at all and suspicions were growing. And ultimately, Michael Gove and his, uh, his team decided that it would be best for them and for him to stand as a candidate, you know, not support Boris three days out or four days out from, from polling. Ultimately, uh, sabotages Boris's campaign who he ultimately pulled out and, you know, the very, very dramatic press conference that many people will still remember. Um, but Michael Gove sort of, you know, torpedoed his own chances because no one likes someone doing... It was seen as dirty tricks uh, and uh, it didn't do him any it didn't do him any good in, in the short run. But Boris Johnson knew that uh, Theresa May was not going to last too long. He went in as her foreign secretary, but this... 
there was no way she was going to unite that cabinet. So he again set out on a strategy of undermining her from the get-go. And ultimately, it led to his resignation after the Chequers declaration, where himself and David Davis resigned. Yeah, and just going back to Theresa May, she comes in through the gap, effectively, yeah. when Gove and Johnson and Le- sabotaged uh, each other's campaigns. And then Andrea Lebson campaigned uh, uh, on a Exactly, well. yeah. So she's in. And then one could suggest perhaps she made the fatal mistake at that point, because she, inside in her cabinet, she put a number of the prominent levers, such as Johnson, and uh, I think Gove was there initially as well. And it was nearly like, and she'd initially been a Remainer, it was nearly as if, right lads, you've got us into this mess, get us out of it. Also as well, I think it was an, an idea of, you know, they're better off being inside the tent than, yeah. than you know, kind of lobbing the grenades from, from outside. Yeah. It, it, ultimately, you know, initially you probably thought, a oh, why a strategy? Because you want to keep your, you keep your enemies close. But ultimately what happened was she was so weak from the get-go and ultimately, once she lost that general election, I mean, she went through a general election thinking she was going to romp home and, and, you know, kind of secure a much greater mandate to deliver Brexit. It obviously didn't go according to plan. She lost seats and they had to then rely on the DUP to stay in power. So she was great. She was like fatally weakened from them. And that just allowed the likes of Boris Johnson, Michael Gove and others who have been plotting and kind of causing trouble just to kind of really make life difficult for her. And I mean, ultimately, she had no... When the, by the time she left office, she was a beaten docket as, as beaten dockets, you know, can be. Yeah, and, and she had, as you said, she had Johnson in as foreign secretary. He'd already had two terms as the mayor of London, and there's mixed reviews over how he did there. Some people said he did all right. Others, I think, said that he was very good at delegating, that he mm-hmm. made a bit of... He continued on with this persona of the, um, you know, that there's that famous image of him on the zip line where he gets stuck up there yeah. and that suited the persona. How did he do as foreign secretary? He was a disastrous foreign secretary and I don't think there's anybody who would actually turn around and say he actually did a good job. Um, you know, not reading briefs properly, repeatedly putting his foot into it, you know, in terms of diplomatic relations. Um, displayed a, a real lack of understanding, particularly on the Irish issue when he was in as foreign secretary. I mean, like his famous quote, you know, you know, the border issue in Ireland would be no different than two, you know, boroughs in, in London, Islington and, and Chelsea, I think. Um, so he showed a, a, a high level of ignorance when he was in the job. And it was no great surprise that when he left that office, you heard all these sort of briefings and kind of leaks from, from the, the sort of the chaos of the foreign office when he was there. Um, but all of this has not damaged him in terms, like he got out of the London mayor, the two terms as London mayor, you know, there were no fatal blows or he didn't suffer any kind of catastrophic fatal blows. He may have not done a great job, but he didn't do anything that, that was so catastrophic that that kind of, you know, prevented him from from uh, from advancing. The same, you know, as foreign secretary, despite being a, like a disaster, electorally within the Conservative Party, he's seen as a winner, as I said. He is seen as someone who can win them an overall majority, much more than, say, Theresa Maywood or even Michael Gove or David Davis or, you know, Dominic, Dominic Rabb or, you know, Philip Hammond or any of these other guys. He was seen as the winner, the guy to deliver them to the whole, you know, to Nirvana. You and, know. and and there seems to be a theme running through his political career that his eye is on the next prize all the time. Like one school of thought has it that as foreign secretary, he was such a disaster because he was like the guy who's perhaps you might say playing for the B team and all he's thinking about is once they see my talent, I'm going to be on the A team. Uh, another one, another school of thought would suggest that that's just his nature. He's a bumbler anyway and we'll come to that in terms mm. of how he's, how he's managed as, as prime minister since. But so he goes along with Theresa May up to a point 
And then he finally says, no, can go no further with this deal that's been hatched in Brussels. Yeah, so the, the likes of Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg and all the rest of it, initially gave Theresa May support when she, you know, gave her Lancaster house speech, you know, where she set out the kind of, we're leaving, uh, we're going to leave the single market, we're going to leave the, you know, the customs union. Every day, all the hardline Brexiteers said, this is manna from heaven, we love this, this is fine. And some people would say, Danny, that's where she made her faith. Yeah, I think so, because like the Irish government's position always, you know, is that she's been a victim of her own red lines, that she started putting red lines as that she just couldn't jump back over. Um, and ultimately what she did from there was narrow the possibilities of what could happen or what couldn't happen. I mean, obviously we all know that the original backstop idea was Northern Ireland only. You know, that was ruled out by the DUP. Then they looked initially again, well, could they make the island of Ireland the backstop or make, you know, kind of that, the sort of the the, the, the territory. Obviously, again, the DUP. All geared towards the idea that there will not be a border yeah. between the Republic and the, the North, Northern, that yeah. the free flow of people, yeah, this frictionless trade, trade, frictionless trade, yeah. that that will continue. Yeah, uh, that was ruled out. So ultimately, Theresa May then had to propose what was a UK-wide backstop against Real opposition from Europe because they just said, listen, en- enough of this. You know what I mean? Um, but and um, ultimately, uh, once you got into that sort of territory, you were making it very difficult uh, because the hardline Brexiteers like Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg and others were saying, no, this is not for us. They were abandoning ship. They were leaking from cabinet. You know, the Irish cabinet is pretty effusive as of now, but the British cabinet, you know, you're almost getting live updates from the cabinet table. So, so there you've there you've gone now, and just again, the trajectory of his career. Yeah. Boris Johnson, you've gone from the man who, prior to the referendum campaign, was tossing it up with his two columns as to which would better further his career. Now, so in other words, he was not an ideological Brexiteer. He was not somebody who was, despite his earlier career in journalism, pathologically anti-Europe or anything, but you've gone from that now to him effectively being one of the lead people in the ranks of the hard Brexiteers, mm. those who want to leave come hell or high water. Well, he certainly was a figure that the hardline Brexiteers could get in behind. You know, he was certainly talking their language. I think at the core of Boris Johnson, he's none of those things. I think he's, he's very socially liberal. I mean, he has quite an exotic mongrel background, as he would say himself, from all over the world. So he, like his views on immigration are far softer than the likes of what G- Jacob Rees-Mogg and, and Nigel Farage, for, for instance, would, would be talking about. Um, he is an economic conservative, there's no doubt about it, um, but he's a social liberal. Um, so, he, But I think what he's trying to do is just, I have always been of the view since he's become prime minister, and I know we're jumping forward a little bit, but we'll come back to it. He has been trying to engineer a position where he could call a general election before the Brexit deadline could happen. So he could then get a mandate. That's the prize that he wants. He wants an overall majority. He wants his own mandate. Uh, and now w- what we're seeing is just him working towards that. But jumping back to the the time of the Chequers declaration that, you know, you saw a number of cabinet ministers resign on, it was a Sunday night, I remember vividly because I was on duty that night, um, that you just, what you saw was, you know, Theresa May having to kind of call out a number of the hardline Brexiteers out of her cabinet and saying, right, you're either on board or you're not. If you're not, out you go. And that's when Johnson and Davis left. However, the difficulty was in it from that moment on, they were free to lob every grenade, every sort of mortar they could onto Downing Street. Um, and they did so with, 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 with relish. Yeah, absolutely. And then we, uh, Theresa May brings forward the deal that's been hatched between the EU and the UK for leaving 
I think most people, well, sorry, most people outside of the UK would certainly regard it as pretty reasonable. Uh, the backstop was necessary. It's necessary because we want to prevent a hard border. Yet, as far as the Brexiteers were concerned, that backstop arrangement ensured that they would not be able to, as they see it, head off along the high seas, um, catching trade deals around the world like old Britannia, except this time instead of bringing guns, they were bringing pieces of paper to uh, sign trade deals with various people. They were prevented from doing that by Theresa May's deal. Three times she tried to get it through the Commons and she couldn't. A lot of the opposition was not from hard Brexiteers, but was basically from the opposition who said they weren't going to sign up to her deal. This leads to her demise. We've a, Then we come forward to an election for the new Conservative leader. And again, up pops our old pal Boris. Again, he was always like, given the fact, I suppose, as I said to you earlier on, from 2016, when Gove essentially did him in, he was plotting his ascent to number 10 in Downing Street. So there was no doubt that he was the front runner from the get-go. He was the one seen as the most likely to take office. Uh, it was just a case of who would stand up against him and what sort of, like, you know, the, the, the feeling was, would there be a candidate strong enough to stand up against that could unify against, you know, kind of, of the moderate wing of the Conservative Party? And there really wasn't. You know what I mean? You really like when Michael Gove was knocked out in the sort of semi-final, you know, as I yeah. see it, um, that was his only real challenger, I would have thought. Um, because Andrew Lebson died a death in, 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 much earlier in the contest. You know, yeah, Esther McVeigh and so many others died a death as well. And ultimately what Jeremy you, Hunt would have been seen as a, a watery character. Very much so. And uh, there was the story again that, you know, Boris Johnson plumped for Hunt in the semi-final round to to eliminate Michael Gove so you know he was given a much easier ride in the in, in the final runoff um but i think if if it was ever going to be a contest between a Jeremy Hunt and a Boris Johnson Boris Johnson was always going to win again for all the factors that we've talked about the cross cross party appeal you know the likability factor the fact that people think he's a, he has this x factor quality that you know some politicians just simply don't have and the fact that you know you know he was the one most likely to deliver them their seat again so therefore he he gets elected by a pretty sizable margin, um, and he enjoys a somewhat of a, a mini honeymoon, you know. Yeah, and one of the crucial things I think, Danny, in that election is that he he put it out there as far as he was concerned. Thirty first of October was Brexit Day. No ifs or buts. That's it. We were leaving. Hunt equivocated a bit because I think he was more realistic about it. But as far as Johnson was concerned, this was what the heartlands of the Tory membership wanted, the 100,000 or so members of the Tory party. This is what they wanted. He'd lost the crown on the previous occasion. He was not going to lose it. Now effectively he was going to promise them whatever they wanted. Absolutely. And therefore he is stuck with that now. Yeah, I mean, he, like you're always better off with a very strong message, whether it's believable or not or realistic or not. Than being kind of a, if you're seen as an equivocator, you're not seen as a moderate or kind of sensible, particularly in the teeth of an election, you're seen as a ditherer. And that's what happened with Jeremy Hunt. Again, that was piled upon this well established reputation that he was, like as you described him, as a watery character. Boris Johnson, no, I'm appealing to your heart, not your head. We will get, I will get you out on the 31st of October, come hell or high water, end of story. Um, and while Parliament was not in session, he was given essentially a free reign. But what was amazing to see this week, was that within four or five hours of Parliament returning, Boris Johnson's authority was massively damaged, you know, fatally sort of uh, interrupted, because he just on his first at the first hurdle he could not get his business done, and what we've seen throughout the week is just a further knock, a further defeat, yeah. a further. So his authority has been greatly damaged this week. I though I have always been of the view 
that the prize was not necessarily getting out on the 31st of October. The prize is a general election and a mandate. And he's just find, trying to find the procedure that gets him, you know, to, to get to that point. He wanted to be in a position that he could blame Parliament and blame Jeremy Corbyn to call a general, you know, to call a generally general election. What we've seen now, you know, he immediately, once he lost that vote the other night in the House of Commons. Um, so the first vote he lost was the, the vote to um, block a no-deal Brexit. Yeah. That was brought forward. He lost that 21 yeah. of the Conservatives, including some party grandees, two former Chancellors of the Exchequer, yeah. all went and they were told, that's it, goodbye, you're out of the party. Mm. He lost that. Then he lost the vote to... Um, once he lost that, he wanted a vote to have a general election yeah. which, for which he required two-thirds of the majority of the House mm. on the basis of the fixed-term parliament. He lost that again. Yeah. Certainly, he seems to have been weakened. He lost his... his um, he lost his working majority. His working majority. He lost Philip Lee, I think it yeah, was. That's right. The who, Liberal Democrats. Who crossed the floor while he was on his feet at the dispatch box. I mean, it was an incredible... Vista for, you know, in terms of political symbolism, your prime minister is at the dispatch box, that very historic position in the House of Commons. And the man who crosses the floor takes with him his, your working majority while you're on your feet. It was a devastating, deliberate attack uh, by Philip Lee. And it just, I think, encapsulated just the vulnerability of the, the, the political system in, title, in total in Westminster, but in, in specifically Boris Johnson's position. He is weakened. His author- he has no authority to get any legislation through the House of Commons. That's clear. His, his immediate gambit was, let's call a general election on October 15th. Why? Because he wants to be, he wants to be in place to go to the EU Council, this key EU Council on October 17th in Brussels. And he wants to say, I now have a mandate to be here as, pre- as Prime Minister to do whatever. Once he has a new mandate, all bets are off. He can ignore the previous mandates of, 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 of pre- or commitments by previous governments. He now has a mandate to do whatever he wants. So he can therefore get an extension once the election's out of the way on different terms. Do you think terms. he would do that after saying there's no way he'd do it? I Well, I, I think it would be very hard for him to cobble a deal together that quickly. Now, what could happen, like you, Europe is the grand institution of fudge. You know, they, they always manage a way to kind of get right to avert crises, late, you know, late night sittings, all the rest of it. What I think you might be able to do is do a deal in principle and let's get and allow time to you know. So you do a deal on a certain key yeah, number and of points. There's a particular one as well, and that is if he gets this mandate, mm. if he manages to win a general election, he's no longer reliant on the DUP. But that's a big scenario. Yeah, the yeah. original idea that you're talking about a, a, a backstop that would involve Northern Ireland, mm. Northern, as opposed to the whole of the UK. Yeah. Then he'd be in a position to go through with that. But the big thing is, can he get a mandate? He's all. He, he, there's 21. MPs who've left, and some of them won't stand again, a number will. If they're outside the party, they mm. won't be, if they're inside the party, they're not going to be happy with Levy on the 31st, should he do. Now, the one huge thing, as far as I can see, that he is going from, and it is inevitable there's going to be a general election, the one big thing he seems to have going from is, not unlike Donald Trump a few years ago, his opponent, would the British people put Jeremy Corbyn in as I don't, Prime Minister? I don't think so, and I think as long as you've got people like Tony Blair who won three elections in a row are in the the background and Alistair Campbell and all these kind of new Labour people saying <coughs> Jeremy Corbyn is not a Prime Minister. He'll never be a Prime Minister. That will put enough doubt in my mind in enough voters. Will they some, still say that if if, if it's a, a, a toss-up between him and Boris Johnson? I think so, yeah. I mean, look at what happened with Neil Kinnock in 1992. Neil Kinnock was assured of, of becoming Prime Minister. 
and all the polls were suggesting that Neil Kinnock was on was on course, and you know there were there was gloating going on. Remember it. And then secretly, what happened was they all said, as much as we hate the Tories, as long as they've been they've been in for you know twelve or thirteen years at that stage, they still went and voted. The famous for John Major. Sun editorial: Last person out, please turn off the lights. The lights. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think there's a, I think more so now with Jeremy Corbyn because he like like Tony Blair's big success was that he brought the Labour Party to the centre ground. And they adopted some of the clothes of the Tory party, but it appealed to a much broader base of people. So therefore, you were able to win not one, not two, but three elections. He won his third election even after the Iraq war. It goes to show how how broad the appeal of the Labour Party was at that stage. You look at the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, it's a narrow, insular, very hard left-wing party which does not appeal to business communities, does not appeal to moderates. You know, it has had to deal with all sorts of in, you know internal issues around anti-Semitism and so on and so forth. Um, he's had to sack an awful lot of people in his own party as well. Um, and I think there is this great doubt of like, you know, and the Tories have been quite effective in this, you know, saying you vote Jeremy Corbyn, he will bring you back to the dark days of socialism of the 1970s, you know, you know three day weeks and kind of shutdowns and so on and so forth. Um, and I still think that lingering doubt over Corbyn's ability to be prime minister will be the difference. And that's why I think uh, Boris Johnson, like him or loathe him, people will see he's a better bet than, than Jeremy Corbyn is. So you think he will get his mandate? Yes. Um, there's one other uh, fly in the ointment there, and that is the Brexit party. If this election takes place before the UK actually leaves mm. the European Union, then the Brexit party is going to stand. They're going to present themselves as the only insurance for those who are committed to leaving uh, come hell or high water or whatever. So you could have a scenario whereby he will require them to prop up a government of which he'd be Prime Minister. I think it's unlikely for two reasons. One, I think the sort of initial wave of enthusiasm for the Brexit party, as reflected in the sort of the, MEP, you know, the, the number of MEPs they got elected, has dissipated. You look at their poll numbers, they have crashed since, since that point. Two, given the idiosyncrasies of the first-past-the-post system, I think it's very unlikely. Like, look, like you know, the UK party were polling in teens and twenties previously. They didn't get one MP elected because of this. You know, the, like you've got deep rooted support for Labour, um, uh, the Tories, and to a certain degree in some areas the Liberal Democrats. And in Scotland, you've obviously got the Scottish National Party. Is there any chance that the Liberal Democrats could be the kingmakers and they could look and put Corbyn into power? I think they would be far more likely to do a deal with Labour this time around than, like, I think there's no appetite from anybody to do a deal with the Tories. The Scottish Nationals, I was watching Newsnight last night, they've ruled that out very vehemently. And they will have a block of 50 plus M M MPs, so they would be a sizable block in the House of Commons, but they've ruled out any deal with the Tories, given how toxic it would play in Scotland. Labour are not going to facilitate the Tories in any sort of way. The Liberal Democrats were so badly burnt by the Tories in their, you know, under, under Nick Clegg. You know, they were decimated. You know, so I think they'd be far more likely to go in and, and look to do a deal as as now it might not be a full go government deal or a kind of a coalition government, but they might do a supply and confidence deal as has happened. You know, at other times. But I think what we need to like, like, like so I think there's a lot to play for. But but um, what you ultimately need to think is, um, Boris Johnson will go to the country blaming Labour. Um, and blaming Parliament for 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 kind of um, the surrender deal or the surrender bill as he's called it in terms of you know taking away his opportunity to negotiate properly with the European Union. Um, so, uh, but also as well as Tony Blair warned very correctly, he will be able to say it's not just Brexit; it's Brexit plus the doubt over Corbyn. And you mix those two together, that is a pretty powerful t and toxic argument to make. And on this side of the Irish Sea, naturally, our main concern is 
in the eventuality that you've suggested, and I think you're probably right from what I can see as well in terms of how it's going to go, will that increase or decrease the possibility of a no-deal Brexit? Oh, it's a good question. Like, I, That's I, really what it's for, as yeah, far as we're concerned yeah, here is, like, is the I big one, isn't it? I would have thought that once the DUP are off the pitch, I think the chances of a, a deal are far more likely because you're no longer constrained by the sort of the UK-wide backstop idea I think if you were to, like look even as well, Mick, you, the sort of the sort of heat around the backstop idea has sort of dissipated. You know, once the, you know in in recent weeks, which really kind of goes to show that wasn't really the bugbear of the Brexiteers at all. Like you know what I mean? That they were look, they just they don't like this. They don't like any sort of suggestion that they would have to stay and do a deal, pay money over to the European Union. The the, the backstop was just a kind of a, a convenient sort of stick to beat Theresa May at the time. But what you're now looking at is they're now like they're like a lot of Brexiteers have already said, well, if the backstop issue gets resolved. There are other issues that we're not happy with. So, you know, it won't be enough even to satisfy them at that stage. And they've, they've made that very, very clear. Um, I would certainly think, though, given the events of this week, while the chances of a no-deal Brexit are certainly high and have increased massively in the last six or seven months or so, um, I would certainly think, given the movers, uh, movements of this week, I think we can have a bit more hope and be a bit more be a bit more satisfied. And then, Danny, if there manages to be a deal, which will avoid, hopefully... catastrophe for both us and in the UK is it possible that Boris Johnson could make a decent fist of being Prime Minister? I think there are a lot of hurdles to get over that first you know what I mean does he he get his mandate back? I would think on on chance of probability yes but there's no guarantee of it like the 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 vicissitudes of a campaign can determine everything you know Uh, two um, you know, will him getting that mandate resolve the Brexit issue once and for all? It's unlikely because there's years of this stuff to to happen. So there's a lot of kind of twists and turns to happen. But the size of the mandate, I mean, if he goes in with a 150 seat majority, then he's home and he's, he's, he will, he has space to do what he wants. But if he's got a very tight majority and he's again, having to rely on others, that would make it very, very difficult for him to do anything really, you know, that, that he would really want to do. So I think it's just very, it's far too early to call. Yeah, he remains a fascinating character, repulsive possibly in some ways, yeah. but the fact that he has this ability, somebody with his own background, to connect with ordinary people is, it's Trumpian, you could say, at mm. this stage. Um, but, he uses, but he deliberately uses very simple language. He's a really good communicator. He is far cleverer than a lot of people. He's not a bumbling idiot. He's a very, very oh, yeah, clever, clever man. Yeah. He got into Oxford on a scholarship. He was in Eton you know, on scholarship as well. He's not an idiot. He works very hard. You know, I know he doesn't give the impression of someone who works very hard. He is chaotic, but he's a very smart, he is a very smart individual. He is, and certainly for the time being, he's going to dominate politics both in the UK and because of what Brexit means to us here as well. And uh, it'll be interesting to see yeah. how he goes. And let's not forget he's here on Monday as well. He's here in, in meeting teacher Leo Varadkar on Monday. If you were Leo Varadkar, what's the first thing you'd say to him? I would be saying, would you calm yourself down, man? And <laughs> can we not just see some, can we not get some common sense? But I, like, it'll be very interesting. I mean, obviously that meeting has been long talked about, long sought for. Um, and, you, you know, the, the failure for them to even talk for over uh, almost a week after Boris Johnson took, took office was a real sign of how bad and how understrained relations between Dublin and London are. Will everything be solved in that meeting? No, they probably won't. But I think what is key will be interesting to see is, you know, Boris Johnson is, is looking at this agricultural solution, you know, this is all Ireland's solution, whether or not there's any give or movement on that in a, as a kind of way of dealing with the backstop will be interesting. And that could be one of the instruments that they could use to, do, to um, you know, go into this sort of mini transition period or kind of agree a deal in principle, but then work out the details in, in due course. That could be one of the mechanisms that they do it. 
Okay, ah, look, it's been a really interesting week and it's, it'll continue to be interesting and hopefully uh, at the end of it we're not going to be left up in a heap because of what's going on in the UK. But Danny McConnell, Danny, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Um, that's it, folks. I'd like to thank producer Declan Conlon. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify. You can let me know what you think at mick.clifford.examiner.ie or on the old Twitter machine on at mickcliff. Thanks very much. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.